Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We're about to have the largest older population we've ever had and really nothing in place to support people to live well as they live longer. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an episode about the future of work, which is a very overused phrase that I would like to reframe and get people thinking about something else when they hear it. Uh, when you hear the future of work, you probably think about robots and AI and driverless cars. I- I've been to a lot of these panels. The future of work is always this idea of a, of a world without workers. The future of work, if you look at what the projections of the Bureau of Labor Statistics are, if you look at what's happening in the demographics of this country, a lot of the future of work is actually not going to go to robots. It's going to go to care workers. It is people who are going to care for the elderly in this country, a huge, huge, huge and growing group. People who are going to care for the young in this country, which is also a a huge group, particularly as millennials are are beginning to have children. You have this huge generation retiring or retired, this huge generation coming into childbearing years or in childbearing years, and a country where we have no real idea what we're going to do about it. And these aren't just important questions of economics and how do you finance it and and how do you make these jobs decent jobs, which they are currently often not. These are the most important questions of what do our final years on earth look like? Are we at home or in a nursing home? Do we have dignity or do we not? Are we individuals? Are we not treated as individuals? They're the most important questions for children almost all of whom grow up now in two-earner households or households with a single parent who's also the sole earner. This is important stuff. And it's much more salient and real and tangible, and we are certain it is coming, um, than a lot of what you hear in future of work punditry. So the person I want to talk to about it was Ajahn Poo. She is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, this tremendous organization representing domestic workers. She is the head of Caring Across Generations, which is devoted to elder care. You'll hear a little bit about the connection between those two projects in this discussion. She's the author of Age of Dignity, which is a great book about elder care. She's won a MacArthur Genius Award, one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. She has been doing really, really amazing work on these issues for for quite a while now. So she's the right person to talk to about this. We talk about 
the ways in which this is a future of work, we, future of our actual lives. We talk about why this care and these issues are undervalued, the role fear plays in it, the way in which we've traditionally devalued women's work and immigrants' work and African-American work and how that has collided into care work today and how that has begun to shape some of the worst dimensions of these jobs. We talk about what it would look like to have a society in which we did have an old age the way we seem to say we want one, in which we did have childcare and the way we seem to say we want it to, to work. So this is a, a, a very interesting conversation, I thought, um, and a very important conversation. These are the questions that will drive our economy, that will drive whether or not we have a middle class, and will also drive the lives of the people we care about most, our children, our parents. It is way more important than it gets credit for in the national political conversation. Here is Ajahn Poo. Ajahn Poo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Why don't we begin here with the story of, of Alice? I read Barbara Ehrenreich's fantastic profile view from a couple of years back. And th this is a person who brought you into the work organizing domestic workers. Who was Alice and what was her circumstance? She is a nanny who, at the age of 15, she was living at home in Jamaica with her family and an American family came and offered her a job as a live-in nanny and said, you know, if you come to the States and help us raise our kids, um, that will also make sure you have access to an American education as well as wages that you can send home to your family to help them uh, pay their bills. And she really jumped at the opportunity. It was like a dream to come to the States. And so she came back with the family and for 15 years lived in their home and helped them raise three children. And throughout that time, communication with her family was cut off. She was never paid and also denied access to her education. So she was essentially enslaved in that home for 15 years. And when one of the children that she helped to raise in that context got old enough to understand what was going on, um, that child actually helped her get connected to the resources that she needed to escape. And one of the things that she was able to do was get in contact with us. And I spent many hours over the phone with her, hearing her story. Who is us and at that point? It's um, an organization in the Asian community that was working on supporting survivors of trafficking, domestic worker survivors of trafficking, mostly from the Philippines. So it was called the Women Workers Project, and it was an initiative of an organization called the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence. And we had just had a case involving a Filipina trafficking survivor that made the news. And um, this young woman in Texas heard about the story and somehow found us, and we were able to uh, connect her with legal support and some resources to leave the situation. And, and so how does coming into contact with this woman, how, how does this begin your work in domestic worker organizing? Well, one of the things I started to understand was that, you know, this industry is really unique in that you could go into any neighborhood or any apartment building and not know which homes are also workplaces. It's not like there's a list or a registry anywhere um, and so it's very much hidden behind closed doors. And then at the same time, 
you can have a wonderful employer who you stay with for generations, and there are many, many stories like that, where the relationship is incredibly positive and healthy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are cases of human trafficking, sexual assault, modern-day slavery-type cases like the one that I just described. So we often compare this industry to the Wild West because you never quite know what you're going to get. You might find a family that you stay with for generations and the relationship is very positive and healthy and respectful. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have stories like Alice's story or like the story that was on the cover of The Atlantic a couple months ago. And then everything in between. And there's very little in the way of guidelines or standards. So even if, you, if you're an employer and you want to do the right thing, oftentimes it's not clear what that is. And so a lot of our work has been to say, how do we reduce the vulnerability so that we don't have any more cases like Alice's in the future? How do we establish standards and also raise the standards so this work can actually be recognized as real dignified work for the 21st century? So this to me, thinking about what kind of work this is, is such an interesting part of this. And you've written and spoken so eloquently on it. But but, but this work seems to me to be at a cross current of two ways that we think about work in this country. On the one hand, it is the most intimate and important work. I mean, the, these folks are, 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 in our, are in our homes, they're taking care of, of children, they're taking care of our parents. I mean, there's nothing that could be more important. And on the other hand, it's, it's in this tradition of work that has been done by women, that has traditionally been uncompensated, that is respected in word, but not through wages, not through government safety programs. You don't get any guaranteed days off. And then it's also at the center of our of our immigration and our racial systems. And that collision seems very, very, very complicated to me, this deep contradiction between the way we talk about this work and the way we treat this work and the way we compensate this work and the way we think about the people who do this work. And it seems to almost predate the idea of this labor as a labor sector at all. That's right. We call it the work that makes all other work possible. Because if you think about it, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's done by a family member or professional, the work of caring for our children, our aging parents, and our grandparents is some of the most fundamental work that has to happen in order to enable everything else. One of the kind of metaphors we've started to use is this idea of infrastructure. If you think about technically the definition of infrastructure as that which enables commerce, and you think about our transportation systems and our highways, and if it's that which enables commerce and everything else in our economy to happen, care has to be one of the most fundamental resources that has to come first. And in the 21st century, when we need more care than ever before with people living longer and millennials starting to have children, we can no longer rely upon this kind of invisible default infrastructure that we used to have, which was that women would just stay home and take care of parents or grandparents or children we just don't have, that's just not our reality anymore. So we do have to think about it really differently for the 21st century. And I think it is kind of an all hands on deck situation where we all, immigrant, non-immigrant, family members, professionals, we all kind of have to be involved in the solution. 
So you are known for for doing work organizing domestic workers, for for running an organization that is trying to think about how to change elder care in this country. And when I looked at your Twitter bio preparing for this interview, I noticed that it said futurist. And I thought, huh, that, that that's interesting. I wonder why she calls herself a futurist. And then we were talking before our, our conversation here, and you were saying to me that these are going to be the single biggest job categories in the country if projections hold true. Can you talk a little bit about the scale of where these professions are going, how many people we're talking about, what role they play uh, as a labor portion of the American economy? Absolutely. One of the things that's less visible in everyday life in this country is, is a massive demographic shift that's underway. And it's not the demographic shift that we mostly hear about in particularly the political news cycle, which is about the racial demographic shift. But layered on top of the racial demographic shift is this generational demographic shift, where the baby boom generation is starting to turn 65 at a rate of a person every eight seconds. Every day, 10,000 people turn 65. And then because of advances in healthcare and technology, people are living longer than ever before, like longer than we ever could have imagined when we put our safety net in place. So we're about to have the largest older population we've ever had and really nothing in place to support people to live well as they live longer, which to me has a lot to do with care. And so that push is really driving a huge increase in the number of elder care jobs that are needed, particularly home care, as more and more people want to age at home and in their communities. So home care is now actually the fastest growing occupation in our entire workforce, the whole workforce, the fastest growing, and it's anticipated to grow at five times the rate of any other workforce And a lot of the economists are projecting that by the year 2030, if you take childcare and elder care jobs combined, it's going to be the single largest occupation. To me, it's both a huge challenge and an opportunity. The challenge for me is that we're looking at jobs where, for example, the home care workforce, the annual median income for a home care worker is $13,000 per year. So people are working incredibly hard. These are the people that we're counting on to take care of the people who cared for us, like my grandmother. And they can't take care of their own families on this income, right? So it's completely unsustainable. The opportunity is that this is going to be one of the jobs that will anchor us in the future. It will anchor the economy and it will anchor and make make it possible for you and I to go to work knowing our loved ones are in good hands. And if we invest in these jobs, it could be really revolutionary for the rest of the economy. So many questions I want to ask here, uh, and I am caught in different ways to take this conversation. So first, I want to just lay out some numbers from your book that, that I thought were really startling to just give a sense of how big this is. So you write that a century ago, about 3% of the population was 65 or older. So a century ago, 3%. Today, more than 13% of Americans are over 65, and by 2030, the number will be 20%. Then on the other side of that, millennials are this huge generation who are beginning and having children now. So Mm -hmm. so you have this huge generation just beginning to really have children. You have the biggest generation in American history becoming seniors. So the number of people in the—and you also are having this all happen in an age where we've never had more 
two uh, income families, right? So you don't have full-time at-home work as one of the sort of spousal unit anymore. So That's we right. just have never had this many people who need help being cared for with yeah. as few people able to provide it in the normal course of their day. Is that fair? That's right. That's exactly right. We have 4 million people turning 65 every year, aging, and then we have 4 million babies born per year. So at a time when we need more care than ever before, we actually have less of it because we used to rely on women who would stay home. And today, 75% of children are growing up in households where all the adults work. So you're absolutely right. So, and then before we get to the question of these jobs and how they're structured and, and, and how they're paid, I actually want to hold for a minute on how this work, these spaces are actually managed. Because this feels to me, one of the things that seems to me to be really interesting and tense about this part of our society is nobody, as far as I can tell, is happy with it overall. Nobody is happy with how we die as Americans. I mean, you read That's right. any book on it, you talk to anyone about it. I'm not saying there aren't individual stories of end-of-life care going well, of, of people being able to be at home. But overall, I think it's widely felt that too many people are in nursing homes, too many people are away from their families, too many people have care that is beyond what was good for them, too many people are in agony, too many people are, are, are lonesome at the end of their lives, and too many people are isolated. Uh, and then on the other hand, a lot of friends with children and just the market for how to get child care, particularly when kids are really young, is brutal. It's really, really, really difficult, really expensive, very, very um, inefficient. A lot of it is very informal. So mm -hmm. you, you have these two things, which there's nothing more important in our lives when it begins happening than our children or our parents aging and becoming infirm. Nobody anywhere is happy with the <laughs> equilibrium we've settled on. And yet it doesn't seem to me that there is any real organized effort, certainly at the political level, to do anything about it, to make anything here affordable, to, to, to make something here work. We just seem to be achingly upset, absolutely crushing people who all of a sudden have to care for children and care for their parents and don't have the ability to do both and some have to hold down jobs. And we sort of have accepted it as a kind of domestic, personal, yet widely mm -hmm. shared misery, as opposed to an actual problem that, that we should be looking to solve on a, on a global level. Yep, that's right. Well, I do think that this moment that we're heading in is really a paradigm. This moment we're heading into is really a paradigm shifting moment. To me, when it when this when what is the current status quo doesn't work for anyone, is when we have a real opportunity for transformation. And for so change. optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> he said, says the guy who lives in Washington. <laughs> no, I actually think that. If you have an issue which is so cross-cutting that it directly affects 100 million people in this country, you have an incredibly powerful force for change. I mean, I can't think of another issue which is so universally felt um, by Americans across race, class, generation in this country than the issue of care. And to me, that's a huge opportunity. We call it unleashing the caring majority. Um, but the idea that we have this unique opportunity of an issue that can really bring us together as a country. 
that is universally beneficial, if we actually solve for how we care for our families in the 21st century as we work, that is a major opportunity for an economic agenda that's bold, that brings people together, for transformation that actually really addresses some of the pain points in people's lives. And so we've been really um, working from the ground up to try to not only organize and, and activate people on this issue, but to help us seize this moment of change and need to actually take this issue from what has historically been seen as kind of a personal private matter into a matter of a national priority for the future. Paint me your picture, not of how we get there, but but where there is. Let, let, let's start on elder care. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how elder care works now and how you wish it worked. Sure. How elder care works now is like wrapped around a lot of mythology. Um, A lot of people think that Medicare, for example, covers long-term care, covers home care, and it actually doesn't at all. Right now, the only way that people are getting support to cover elder care, whether it's at home or in a nursing home context, is really through spending down, completely depleting your assets, impoverishing yourself in order to be eligible for Medicaid. Very few people have long-term care insurance, and a lot of the private insurers are trying to get out of the long-term care insurance market because it's such a terrible product. Like It never quite covers what you need, when you need it. And so people are either paying out of pocket, and it's incredibly costly. So the average private room stay in a nursing home is $87,000 per year. That, right? That's an amazing number, by the way, just for, for a minute to stop there. That, given that it is often not covered by anything, when you look at retirement savings in this country and just savings in general, the number of people who can deal with a 15 or 10-year $87,000 annual expense is not high. It's The numbers do not work. When When 75% of the American workforce earns less than $50,000 per year, (laughs) I mean, you just, the numbers just don't work. It's really profound. The fact that we do not have a plan for how we support working families to afford the care they need to take care of their loved ones is really a major issue. And it's creating so much stress as people try to work and care for loved ones. There's 52 million Americans who work full-time and spend more than 20 hours a week caring for an aging parent or loved one. I'm sorry, I want to hear that again. 52 million Americans work full-time and spend more than 20 hours a week? Yes. That's wild. It's wild. Let me ask you something about the Medicare side of this. I think the broadly held view of healthcare and just care for the elderly is that we've got all these problems in America, but we got that one figured out. We've got Medicare, we've got Social Security. Now we got to worry about college tuition and healthcare for people who are 47 and don't make much money. And, and we've, got, we've got the elderly figured out. Why doesn't Medicare, why doesn't something handle long-term care? What, what is it in their evolution that led to that being this giant gaping hole? I think it's our hyper-medicalized notion of what health is and what healthcare is. If you think about what good caregiving does, 
is it helps you uh, manage chronic illnesses, take your medication on time, get the exercise and the rest you need, and then get assistance with activities of daily living. And when you're able to have access to good care at home under those contexts, it's actually the best form of prevention you can imagine depending on who you ask. Some people will tell you that there's about a trillion dollars worth of waste in the healthcare system every year, and it's concentrated at end-of-life healthcare because there's a lot of unnecessary institutionalization and rehospitalization that happens that could be avoided if we actually had better care available to people at home so that they could actually maintain a better quality of life and health day-to-day before it becomes a medical situation. And that's, Medicare covers the medical. And so it does cover home health care very narrowly in relationship to after somebody's been discharged from the hospital where it's an acute situation and they need a nurse or a healthcare professional to come in and check on them. But that's only up to 30 days. So it's very limited. There are people like my grandmother who's 93, who's living in California, and she doesn't have a medical situation that would require her to see a doctor or even a nurse on a regular basis, but she can't do some of the basic activities of daily living on her own anymore. And so home care workers really support her to be able to stay at home, to stay healthy, have a good quality of life, go to church twice a week, stay active. And in Atul Gawande's words, to be the author of her own story for as long as possible. And it's saving everyone money. Um, And that's where we need to head to in the future. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to tell you a story here because this hits to one of these wounds that I carry. Um, All reporters Mm -hmm. have these stories they've done where they're reported on something and it just it, it went the wrong way. Um, And this is one of mine. I did a piece on a Medicare pilot program a number of years back called Health Quality Partners. I found out about them because one of the folks I know who I trust most in healthcare called me and he said, there is this Medicare pilot program and they are getting better results than anything else anyone does. And Medicare is about to shut them down and you have to go look at this. So they were in, in Pennsylvania and I went and looked at them. And they were a pilot program that was focusing on care for the absolute sickest people in Medicare, people who did not have a lot of money, who had a lot of comorbidity. They had many, many, many problems stacked on top of each other, you know, early stage dementia mixed with terrible hypertension, mixed with this and that and the other thing. Hmm. And they were getting these extraordinarily highly, highly validated results. And the way they were doing it was they were just, I mean, they were just having people check up on the folks in the program all of the time. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. more than that. There was great management in the program, great people in the program. They were very evidence-based. But at the core of it, they were pushing care to these people and really trying to do these continuous holistic assessments 
in their home, did there appear to be risks for falling or tripping? You know, how was that working? What was happening with their partner, their spouse? Was their partner or spouse able to understand what was going on with, with their loved one's medications? I mean, it was really the most basic stuff, and, and it was working. And the program got shut down, ultimately. My article got it a reprieve. It got another 18 months, and then it got shut down. And mm. I remember we, we titled the piece, If This Was a Pill, You Would Pay Anything to Get It, because mm. there's just absolutely no doubt that if there had been a terribly invasive surgery— that cost exactly as much money or twice as much money or three times as much money, but showed half the results, Medicare would be paying for it for everyone. And we just seem to have in our healthcare system broadly, but, but particularly in Medicare, no real sense of how to pay for something that is not an in-hospital or in-a-pill-bottle medical intervention. And it's strange because no, you don't. There's no one you talk to in the healthcare system where that is their view of how health works. Nobody views that views it that way. But the way the payment is structured, the way the program is structured, what, what you said at the beginning of, of your comment to me, that we don't know how to get beyond the medicalization of people's health. It, it's really, really profoundly true, and it's true even when we're sitting there staring better ways to do it in the face. And it's one of these things where I've never been able to come up with an answer of how we can have this system where everybody knows what we're doing is wrong and nobody quite seems able to figure out a different way. Hmm. Yeah, we've totally lost the care part of healthcare. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And when I think about the work that home care mm -hmm. workers do every single day, at its best, what it really fundamentally comes down to is upholding the human dignity of another person. That what you're doing every single day is connecting with the human being that is in your care and you're doing everything necessary so that that person can have a dignified quality of life for as long as possible. That's actually very hard work. <laughs> and we have not figured out a way to value it. But the trick is that in the 21st century, when that is becoming such a huge share of the work that's needed in order for this economy and our families to function properly, we have to figure out a way to value it. And I think that that, that is the future. When we can figure out how we revalue the care part of our health, the health of our families, the health of our economy, that's when we're actually going to be on to the fundamentals of a sustainable society. I'd like to talk about that word dignity for a minute, because it, it seems to me to be a very widely held again and completely undervalued part of our system, of our lives, of our, of our vision here. Uh, Don Berwick, who used to be, who was for a period of time, CMS administrator, um, he used to, he had this speech that was very famous where he said that the thing he was afraid of about getting sick wasn't the getting sick part and it wasn't the part where he had treatments and surgeries and, and, and medications. It was a part where he lost his own humanity, where he got treated mm -hmm. as a patient, where he got treated as a problem to be solved. And I think we all understand for ourselves, for, for our loved ones, for the people around us, that of the things you might value as you get older, of, at any point in your life really, but, but in this conversation as you get older, holding on to your dignity to some degree of your autonomy is really high. 
And, and yet that's, that's another right. thing that we don't in any way measure. We don't reimburse <laughs> for. We will pay a drug company or a medical device company or a hospital anything for a treatment that in any way shows any kind of improvement on sort of narrowly understood health outcomes, or even frankly, half the time doesn't, uh, but for but anything that shows any kind of medicalized improvement, right? If you can show that this reduces chronic pain by 7%, like you get that, that gets reimbursed. And if you can show that this way of delivering care improves people's feeling of dignity and control over their own life by 50%, by 75%, we have, it doesn't even exist. There's no way to even have the conversation. How do you change that? Because this is another one of these places where I don't think anybody doesn't want it to change. Just nobody's changed it. So this, the way our country thinks about aging and dying and this kind of culture, this dominant culture of kind of fear of death and dying, and then kind of an association of aging with disability, decline, frailty. I think that there's a way in which that prevents us from having a really healthy approach to people's agency and dignity throughout every stage of life. So for example, if you if you think about the fact that Living longer is actually longer to love, to learn, to teach, to contribute. I mean, it, living longer is more time to do all the things that make life worth living if we have the right supports in place. If we could actually think about aging and preparing for aging and end of life in a way that was about what do we need to live well and have agency and dignity at every stage of life? And how do we value the supports and the people that will make that possible? The work that will make that possible, the systems that will make that possible, the policies, the infrastructure, we almost have to really kind of reorient our whole attitude around the later years of life. And if we're able to do that, so much human potential can be unlocked. Can, can I ask you, how much do you think our inability to do that is about our own fear, our own fear of our own mortality, of our own death, our own desire not to face these questions in explicit way, because that's one way of denying they're ever going to happen to us. And also not to face them for our loved ones, because to make trade-offs in that area, to make those trade-offs explicit, is emotionally very wrenching. I think that's true. I do think that there's a, a change in culture that needs to happen in order for us to have a healthier relationship to death and dying. Um, but I think a lot about, uh, how I spent some time in Hawaii working on a piece of legislation that's just recently passed there um, called the Kapuna Caregiver Program. And Kapuna is the Hawaiian word for elder, and it's associated with dignity for one, but also a place of honor in the community, in the community, like a part of, it's a revered part of our families and our, our communities. And um, 
And in Hawaii, there's been a 20-year-long effort to create a caregiver program that supports people who need home care and long-term care, basically our elders. And this year, uh, Caring Across Generations, the effort that I co-lead, worked with people in the state to pass this program, which is the first of its kind to support working family caregivers to be able to keep their loved ones at home as they age. And going through the state legislature, you know, sitting down with people and saying, we want to we want to help caregivers. We want to support our kapuna to have a dignified quality of life. It's a no-brainer. And I, I think it's partly the Hawaiian tradition. It's partly the Native Hawaiian culture and all of the kind of immigrant cultures that uh, make Hawaii and the culture in Hawaii what it is. But I think that that has created the context for a whole different conversation about solutions that I'm hoping the rest of the country starts to come around to. Um, but it, it that shift in culture is underneath what's possible in terms of solutions. So that's a good bridge back to the conversation I asked you a while back before I then pushed us down 12 side streets and alleys, which is, <laughs> what is your vision of, of what growing older in America should look like? Well, I would embed my vision for growing older in America in a vision for the future of families across generations. And the big idea that I have is this idea called universal family care. The idea that there should be one fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us afford childcare, elder care, paid family leave, and support for our loved ones with disabilities, basically everything we need in the 21st century to care for our families as we work. That to me is a way to reflect the kind of shift in needs that American families are uh, experiencing, the shift in our economy in terms of the way that we're working and everyone's in the workforce, and also just a shift in our ability to create a kind of social contract for the 21st century that just that reflects a level of flexibility and a way in which we need to be thinking more holistically about what we need. So tell me a bit about how something like that would work, because that, that's an idea that I think is, it's actually a whole area of policy, family policy, like in modernizing policy to fit modern families, uh, that feels very important and like it's always about to become something we really talk about in this country. I actually thought that was one of the interesting dimensions of Hillary Clinton's campaign, that she's somebody who really cares about those issues uh, mm -hmm. and then sort of never is. We never quite get there. So would that be something where you collapse programs we currently have? Is that a whole new funding stream? I mean, how do you, how does that fit into everything? I think it would be a new funding stream, um, a new almost like Medicare, where it would be a new fund that we all know exists, that we would all contribute to, a social insurance fund that would be the largest pool in history, right? Social insurance works best when we're all contributing or when you have really large numbers of people contributing. And I can't, it's hard to imagine a pool of contributors bigger than those of us who would need care um, in one form or another. And so, it would be something like that, uh, where 
it wouldn't be something that would be dependent on income, but it would really support people who had the greatest need the most. And, um, and it would be really holistic. I mean, one of the things that we found is if you go to families and you start talking about childcare, then they start talking to you about elder care. If you go and talk about paid leave, they'll start talking about elder care or child care. And these, the way that American families are experiencing these needs is very holistic and it's not permanent. It changes, right? And everyone needs something a little different at a little bit different of a stage. And this kind of a fund would provide that kind of flexibility, I think. So something that's interesting to me about the way you just put that, when I looked at the work you've been doing and saw the addition of elder care into your portfolio of, of many jobs and affiliations, I had a story in my head, which was that you had probably gone through an experience with a, a loved one, and this became something you became very passionate about. And, and you do tell in your book this very, very profound and, and affecting story about your grandfather. But you also say that what happened was you work with domestic workers who were there to provide childcare, there to sort of help with the house, and they were coming to you and saying, hey, actually, we are being asked to care for aging parents now. And and we we need training in that. And I'm I'm curious about how that emerged for you, or how you see that changing in, in the workforce you work with. Because that, that that to me was a really interesting piece of your evolution and, and sensitization to this issue. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's natural when we have a situation where there's a huge increase in the need for elder care supports and very little in, in place to support families they're going to naturally gravitate towards the the people and the places where they're currently getting support. And a lot of people have house cleaners who they really trust and have really strong relationships with. And so when Aunt Joan gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's, they're naturally going to ask the house cleaner, can you also help me take care of Aunt Joan? And that's really what's happening in households around the country. And so I started to see more and more fluidity between people who are working for families as cleaners, as childcare providers, and as elder care support, and realizing that people are going to need more training as they move into these fields that are actually, they require different skills, different preparation, and supporting families in a holistic way is actually really complicated. So we're going to have to prepare them differently and Frankly, it's an opportunity to really highlight the important role that this workforce plays hidden behind closed doors in making American families' um, home lives work. And so how do we take this moment where there's this huge increase in need to really invest in this workforce as part of the solution and also shine a light on the diversity of this workforce and the fact that 40% of the direct care workforce, for example, is immigrant. It's really hard to imagine how we meet our elder care needs in this country without a really strong immigrant workforce. So these are opportunities to make connections for people around how we're already interdependent, interconnected. And if we invest in our relationships properly, we can actually, if we lift all boats, it's a win-win. You have in this country a political coalition centered around older Americans that has become extremely anti-immigrant. 
And yet there is no group, and I don't in any way want to be glib about this, that arguably benefits as much from having a healthy immigrant workforce than older Americans. I mean, as I look at the numbers of, of what is coming, of where we are now, it seems to me that the alternative to having quite a few immigrants in this country is nursing homes. It's fewer and fewer people being able to age and live out their final years and and, and months at home. And mm-hmm. yet there doesn't seem to me to be any sense of that connection of the benefit to both sides, that, that there is some kind of cultural enmity that is overwhelming what is a very deep need and, as you put it, interdependency. Mm-hmm. It's true. It, it really is. I think if we can start to shine a light on this reality, I think it could be one of the things that helps to change the conversation about immigration. Um, in some ways, the state of Arizona is a canary in the mine for us. Um, we often talk about the changing demographics in terms of race, but when you layer on top of it the changing demographics generationally, you actually see that the white the older population is significantly whiter and the younger population is significantly more diverse and of color. And Arizona is the state in the country that is the most racially and generationally polarized of any state in the country, meaning they're the most white people over the age of 65 and the most young people of color under the age of 18. And it's no accident in that context of racial and general generational polarization that Arizona was the birthplace of the notorious anti-immigrant legislation, SB 1070, the place where Sheriff Joe Arpaio rose to power, um, who, you know, basically was indicted for um, torturing immigrants in detention in the facilities that he ran and racial profiling in Arizona, also the first and only pardon of the Trump administration, right? The, in some ways, we are f- Arizona is helping us forecast if we don't find a way to put forward a vision of the future of this country that really unites us across race, class, and generation, where everyone can see their future and their interests inside of that vision. We do run the risk of increasing levels of racial and generational polarization, which is a really toxic breeding ground for hateful policy and hateful leadership. And so I think there's a ton at stake here and a way that talking about care and caregiving can bring us together in the most important and urgent context for that kind of a unifying vision. When you think about the jobs that exist here and are being created here, you mentioned earlier, if I'm remembering the number right, that the average worker in this space is paid $13,000 a year, which is a remarkable number um, in in terms of how low it is. This is a a workforce that is very heavily immigrant, um, heavily to the extent it's native-born, African-American, very heavily female. These are all categories for whom we have tended to devalue their labor. How do you make these jobs good jobs, particularly in an era when unions are weaker, when um, there's a retirement savings crisis, when people don't have enough money to pay for what they need to pay for? I mean, what is what is the path here towards having the largest category of work in this country in the future 
be a kind of work that we value and can build a middle class around. This is the reason why I love the idea of something like universal family care, because it allows us to invest in caregiving as infrastructure, such that we can actually imagine a path towards these jobs becoming living wage jobs with benefits and economic security, where there's training and career pathways, and a way in which we're starting to recognize and invest in this workforce as a key part of our economy um, and a key part of the 21st century American workforce. You know, just like we did in the 1920s and 30s, manufacturing jobs were sweatshop jobs that were dangerous. Lots of immigrant women and people of lower social status did these jobs. And we turned these jobs into good jobs where one generation could do better than the next and you could actually take pride in your work at the end of the day. That's what we need to do in the 21st century with care jobs. And it will require a collective investment on our parts, but honestly, we are paying incredibly high cost for care as it stands. If we actually collectivize the way that we do that, we can invest in this, these jobs and this infrastructure, including our own ability to afford care, totally anew. I, I want to go back to the story you just told in, in very quick fashion about manufacturing the 20th century, because I, I think people hear that. They, they, they hear that line that, look, these were sweatshop jobs, they were dangerous, they were low paid. And then, you know, it's like dot, 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 thriving middle class, you know, growing 20th century America golden age. I am sure you, in your work, have studied how that happened. What, what, is your, what is your story for how manufacturing jobs in America became good jobs? Workers came together, and they came together with their communities to say, we need a voice at work. We need to be at the table and shaping the quality of these jobs. And then employers and government came to the table and everyone together across sector, across different interests, leaders and everyday people actually agreed that we needed to, um, we needed a movement to transform work in America. And, and employers, there were some employers who led and took risks and um, supported the efforts of workers who were organized and demanding change. And then we had leadership in elected office who put the policy levers in place to really support that. And over time and lots of organizing um, and a combination of strategies, we were able to do it. I don't think it's a it's it's not one part of the economy or one group of people, but it became a national priority driven by a social movement of working people and their communities who organized and um, and lots of roles for leadership. And I think in the 21st century, we've got to figure out how we do that, how we choose to be a part of the solution, take some risks to get at the heart of economic inequality get at the heart of why workers don't have a voice in the future of work, get at the heart of why we don't actually support people to take care of their families. And it will require social movements and also a ton of leadership across sectors. Let, let me push you on the pessimistic version of this. So, so when I hear people tell the story of manufacturing 20th century, 
And pretty when I hear folks who are skeptical of unions and skeptical of organizing, explain why they think it won't come back. What I hear is something like this. On the one hand, you had manufacturing, which has some unusual dimensions to it as, as an industry. And in particular, you have these organizations where for a certain number of workers, you have these massive capital investments throwing off these huge, huge profits. America becomes this manufacturing juggernaut. And so that you will sometimes hear the argument that there's something special about manufacturing and also special about being able to organize on a shop floor, you know, having GE, having sort of quasi-monopolies in the American economy, you know, and a much more sort of corporatist government relationship where, where these things work together. Um, and then on the other side, just that unions were stronger, um, certainly at a certain moment to come the, the 20th century, that they, that they were able to do more. There's a lot of conflict and there was a more militarized approach to that conflict at, at oftentimes. And that in this era, when you've got this globalized workforce, these disempowered workers, many of whom don't speak English, some of whom don't even have um, the record documentation to be able to advocate for themselves. Uh, when you have workers who are scattered, who are caring for folks who, unlike a, a machine that manufactures cars, somebody who's retired does not throw off huge amounts of, of profit, that it's just, it's a different industry. It's a different time. America's in a different place. And this kind of nostalgia for what we were once able to do with a different e economy and a very, very different situation is not helpful when applied to today. What, what, what is your response to that case? I would say that the, the framework for unionization and collective bargaining and collective voice for workers was born of a very different economy and a very different time in the trajectory of this country. And we have since, um, we are in the midst of a digital revolution. Um, we have, we're now decades into globalization. It is just a fundamentally different economic reality and a fundamentally different way that we are working in this country. And so I would say that there's some things, even despite that, which are still true. Um, one being that workers in this country deserve a dignified quality of life and work. They deserve the ability to um, support their families after working hard all day long. And that basic right or basic part of what should be the, the American dream is slipping away. And that in order for workers to have a better shot in the future in this economy and for us to transform this brutally unequal economy, that workers are going to need a voice. Now, exactly what that looks like, I actually think it's going to look really different from what it looked like in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s even. The form of worker organization and worker voice is going to necessarily have to be very different. But what isn't going to change is the need for workers to have a seat at the table. I mean, right now, the future of work is being defined it's just happening in rooms where there's no worker voice or representation. And uh, in order for us to have uh, a shot at actually achieving better jobs, better conditions, a better quality of life for working people in this country, we're going to have to change that. And so that's 
a lot of what I spend my days thinking about is what does that look like for the 21st century and what are the experiments that we need to do in order to get there to really understand what it looks like for workers to have a seat at the table and have real power and voice to be able to shape the future. I really like that you bring in the language of the future of work here uh, because I have been part of a lot of the future of work conversations and panels and have heard a lot of those kinds of speeches. And implicit in the future of work always seems to be this idea that we're talking about a world where we no longer need workers. I mean, that is what always sneaks in under the future of work. It's a world of AI and a world of driverless cars and a world of automation. And what are we going to do when work is done without workers? And you never, ever, ever see a future of work panel at, at these conferences or on the cover of a magazine. And it's all about care work. Even though we right. we know, I mean, this is not secret data that care work is this explosive sector. And we're pretty yep. sure that even, I am pretty sure that even if we get fairly far down the road in AI, we're still very far from having artificial intelligence care for your mother with dementia. So how, how do you think about this future of work conversation? How do you think about recentering it on the workers that we're actually going to need and not this hypothetical of a world where we somehow don't need workers anymore. That's right. Well, that is precisely my mission in life these days is to figure out how to recenter the future of work conversation on the dignity and opportunity of working people, how we create equity. Um, Often in Silicon Valley and where a lot of these conversations are happening and, and my challenge to people in tech who are really playing an outsized role in shaping the future of the economy, I say to them, you know, that we Silicon Valley has done a great job of solving for convenience and efficiency. It's time we solved for equity and actually tried to figure out how technology enhances quality of life and work rather than displaces work. Um, if you see some of the machinery that home care workers use. There's this thing called the Hoyer lift. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but it's this arcane machine that helps home care workers lift and move um, the people they support from place to place. And it is the most ridiculous. I mean, I can't even believe these things are still in operation. And why don't we have technology (laughs) and deploy our resources and creativity towards making these jobs that are actually quite difficult that we know we're going to need, make them a little bit easier, more efficient, and enhance the ability of caregivers to focus on the care part as opposed to the physical and the strenuous part of this work. That's the kind of conversation about the future of technology and work that I think we need to see more of. And part of my theory is that that starts to happen more when you have more actual workers in the room and more um, worker advocates who can look at things from the vantage point of this huge part of the economy, which is the people who are working, um, and, and really try to solve for their user experience and their um, their ability to work sustainably in this economy. Is there a country or a community that you look at as a model for where this kind of work should go, how it should be compensated, how it should be structured? 
It's a great question, one that I get pretty often. And I, you know, there's the obvious way to point towards countries that have invested more in the care infrastructure. In other words, really accounting for the fact that families need time and they need resources in order to care for their children and their aging parents or their loved ones with disabilities. And so there are more programs, um, public programs to support affordability of care or access to caregiving. I think that the United States has the opportunity to really lead in care jobs becoming really good jobs for the 21st century. I think that that would be, I have not seen a country in the world that has done a good enough job in honoring the place that care work has in the economy and really investing in these jobs. And I think that we have the potential to do that here. And and is that, I mean, that's in a way, I recognize the optimistic spin you've got on that answer. That is a very depressing answer, actually. And, and is that because this care work question is a relatively new question in, in, in human history that has to do with changes in the family and the workforce and gender equity and who goes to work and two-income families? I mean, is it because we're facing a new question or relatively new question uh, that we have to solve in a different way and just nobody has solved it yet? You know, it's funny. I think it's partly that we're facing a new question and partly that we're facing a very, very old question, which is that work that has historically been associated with women has just not been valued or recognized or um, really protected, respected. I mean, I think um, my friend Heather McGee often talks about how everything comes down to a hierarchy of human value, even how we value work, right, and who it's associated with. And I think that on some very fundamental level, we haven't revalued the work that has historically been associated with women as part of their natural role in society. So I think it's both a new question and a very old one. So I'm going to ask you the question that we always um, use to end this podcast, uh, which is what are three books you've read on this subject or, or any other that have influenced you over the years that you would recommend to the audience? Hmm. Three books I would recommend. One is Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. Another is one that I'm reading right now, Shonda Rhimes's book, The Year of Yes. There's something about what we need to do to kind of challenge ourselves to always stand in the sun that feels really important in that book. And this book that came out maybe a year ago, Gloria Steinem's memoir, My Life on the Road, um, she talks about hope as a form of planning and all the journeys that have helped her see this country and its diversity and uh I think that the three combined give us a sense of kind of hope, what we need to do as individuals, but maybe also how we need to see ourselves as a country. I, I really, I just want to note, I love Atuguanes being mortal. And, and also I'm going to take the opportunity to plug um, on The Weeds, which is my other podcast. Sarah Cliff has a fantastic interview with Gawande that's heavily about end-of-life care. So if people want an introduction to how he's thinking about that, they should check that out on The Weeds. But for now, this was a, a really, really great conversation. And I really uh, appreciate you being here. Thanks for being willing to talk about these things that we rarely talk about. 
Thank you so much to Aijen Pu for being here. That was a really, really fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to her also for the work she's doing, which is really, really important. Um, thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Peter Leonard. Ezra Clancho is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week.